Welcome back to Look Ma No Hands. I'm your host, Laura Max Rose, and I am so excited to bring you part one of the sex talk today. I'm here with Dr. Emily Jamia of Revive Therapy. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Dr. Jamia is a sex therapist whom so many of you have requested that I talk to. I would say the majority of questions and inquiries that I get or requests for show topics are all about sex. What's normal, what's not, especially those of you who are postpartum. Um, I have no desire. I used to. My husband doesn't have any desire anymore. What do I do about it? And obviously, as much as we think we've grown and evolved in the year 2020, most of us are still very uncomfortable talking about these things with each other. I have a theory that I'll run by Dr. Jamia that the reason why um, so many of us are so insecure around this issue is because we don't talk about it. We don't know what's going on in other people's (laughs) lives. Yeah, she's nodding along with me. It's the same thing as some of the shame some of us have about parenting. We don't know whether or not we're a good mom or a bad mom because so many of us don't talk about the ugly moments that happen in our parenting lives. So we just make assumptions about other people that nothing bad ever happens in their home. When it happens to us, we don't want to talk about it with anyone. So I think sex is definitely one of those issues. And I'm so excited to ask you all these questions. Oh, yes, definitely one of those issues. (laughs) (laughs) I did poll my followers about what they wanted me to ask you today. So I have a bunch of their questions. The most common inquiry question struggle that I find people have is I just had a baby and I have no sex drive. Yes. (laughs) Where do we start with that? There is so much to talk about that. We could do a whole series on it, but I'll break it down um, into a couple of different ways to make it easy to understand. So when it comes to sexual desire, which by the way, is probably the most common reason people come in to see me is because they're struggling with desire. Um, It's helpful to think of it with the biopsychosocial model. Okay. That's kind of how we as clinicians analyze what's going on. So to break that down, we've got the bio. So that's what's happening to you biologically. And I'll talk about what is happening biologically for women who are postpartum. We've got the psycho. So that's what's happening psychologically, which we'll talk about. And then we've got the social. Okay. And that's what's happening in your relationship and your environment. All three of those components affect our desire for sex. And when you say postpartum, I just want to clarify, what is that? What time period does that really refer to? Gosh, I mean, it can really range for people. You know, women who are breastfeeding for a long period of time, for example, may have some of the biological effects of postpartum a little bit longer than other women. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, when we think of like, I don't know if you've heard of the concept of fourth trimester that, um, you know, the fourth trimester for women can, you know, really last anywhere you know, up to like 18 months sometimes or, okay. or well into toddlerhood. I think that's good for people to know because yeah. some people think like, oh, I'm postpartum for like six weeks or three months oh, and no, if no, I no. have any problems after that, there's something wrong with no, me. No, a lot of people have this magical six-week number in their head because that's when you go in for your postpartum checkup and they kind of tell you, I'm you know, okay are you healed and, you know, you're cleared for sex. And right. the fact is cleared. that, yeah, even though perhaps your body may be ready, you may be far from ready emotionally or, you know, in other aspects of 
of your biology. So, so let's talk about why that is. Yeah. So I think it's first helpful to talk about what's happening biologically. Okay. So um, especially for women who are breastfeeding, there are three hormones that are pretty affected through that process. Um, the first is oxytocin. Okay. So oxytocin is like that feel-good chemical. It's called the cuddle hormone. It It's what kind of entices you to cuddle your baby and hold your baby and be close to him or her. Oxytocin is also released after an orgasm. Okay. So if you think about it, if that hormone is already really high from breastfeeding and snuggling your baby all day long, you might not be, you know, and this is happening on a very subconscious level, as motivated to, you know, seek that out through your partner. Interesting. Okay. So that's one. The second hormone that's affected is estrogen, okay? Estrogen levels drop when we're breastfeeding, and estrogen is really key for vaginal lubrication. So a lot of women may notice that they are having vaginal dryness during the breastfeeding process. Which they and might associate with something that happened during labor, that they're still healing. Exactly. They may think okay. there's just something wrong with them, or because I'm having vaginal dryness, I that must be a sign that I don't want to have sex. And really, it's just because of your estrogen levels being low. Okay. And so, you know, that's something like an over-the-counter lubricant can help with. But, you know, for some women, it can be so extreme that it really causes painful intercourse. And if something's painful, you're not going to want to do it. Right. Okay? We had somebody, we had um, Jenna Longoria, the period mm-hmm. guru, was my first oh, guest great. on the show and she talked about how the effects of birth control the progestin can actually yeah. create the same effect and yes that it causes really painful sex and women just think that there's something wrong with them and they get treated for vulvodynia oh, or like right. something else that's wrong with them but really it's the birth control be that's the causing the problem exactly right. exactly okay. interesting so the third hormone that can be affected is prolactin so prolactin levels rise during breastfeeding that's what allows us to create breast milk and when prolactin levels are high that can cause our sexual desire to go down Okay, okay, so, so prolactin and I do not get along very well. Okay, I see, now you I just kind of know. makes me a monster, Yeah, I think. Yeah, and I it can for monster. some people, you know, <laughs> definitely. So, so those are the three hormones that can really be affected through breastfeeding, and that is how they can affect, you know, your sexuality. Um, and then there's what's, you know, happening in the physical recovery process. You know, there are women who maybe tore, you know, as they were having a vaginal delivery or who are recovering for, from a C-section. And that can take a lot longer to heal from. Um, and so, you know, again, that may cause some discomfort during sex. And, you know, again, if something's painful, you're just not going to want to do it. You're just not going to want to do it. And then yeah. add on top of that, that we are seeing images in the media we are still we're, we're seeing movies that are allegedly based in reality where couples are able to resume a normal healthy sex life right after a baby is born and we're yeah. starting to question ourselves we're try- starting to question i hear a lot of people talking about how they question their feelings towards their spouse because of their lack of sexual desire right and i i'm wondering what you think about how those two things go together oh totally i it's like turn a turn like close your eyes when it comes to hollywood and movies and you know how relationships and especially how sex is portrayed because they're not showing the hard stuff you know they're showing couples like coming together with simultaneous desire and having simultaneous orgasms like it's the norm and you know you don't see the awkwardness or you know the discomfort or the easing back into or the interruption from the baby crying none of that is portrayed in the movies and so we have this very distorted 
idea of what is normal. And like you said earlier, we don't really talk about it because no. we have shame about it. And the fact that we don't talk about it perpetuates the shame. So well, that's what I love so much about telling people that I'm going to be doing this episode with you is that they just start all asking me these questions and everybody's like on the same page. Everybody has right. the same questions. Everybody's having the same experiences, yeah. but nobody's talking about it with each other. Exactly. And I feel like if we brought this su- su- subject more out into the mm-hmm. open, we would all just be happier and more comfortable with ourselves and who we totally. are. And just this is it's okay. Right. It's there's what a I'm light at the right now is yeah, okay. there's a light at the end of the tunnel. This is temporary. I did um my my PhD in sexology a couple years ago and for the research that I did, I was looking at what components yield more optimal sexual satisfaction. And I excluded participants who were either currently pregnant or who had one who were in one year of postpartum because I just know from the research that those participants probably aren't having the most optimal sexual experiences. So Uh, interesting, you know, it's just one of those things. It's, it's a period of time that can be very challenging for couples. So what happens when someone comes to you and they've been in a, like they've, they're married, they have a kid and it's been 12 months and maybe mm-hmm. they're still breastfeeding. Maybe they're not breastfeeding at right, all. Right. There are a lot of women who aren't breastfeeding who yeah. are experiencing these issues mm-hmm. and it's been 12 months. They're not really interested in having sex and their right. partner is pretty unhappy about that. Yeah. So we talked about the bio part of the biopsychosocial model, but, um, you know, what the effects of what's happening psychologically can linger, you know, well beyond the changes that are happening biologically. So, you know, the, the two primary changes we see for women psychologically is depression and anxiety. You know, it's a very overwhelming process to bring a baby into the world and we don't do it in a village anymore. You no, know, we we're expected to do it all on our own and, you know, if you, I mean, are we're on, wound up, like oh, our yeah. stress levels as women. Oh my God. Yes. Like we're coiled by yes, the end of the day. Absolutely. Like, and Rrr. you know, these, these social media bloggers who are walking around in their, you know, Louboutins with a Starbucks cup, yeah, and, no. you know, strolling their perfectly content baby. It gives, actually makes you know, me chuckle now. Like yeah, out loud. I mean, I it's can like, that's chuckle. Just, yeah, yeah, that's just not the reality uh-huh. for yeah. most women, you know? So, but we see <laughs> this and we're like, well, why am I feeling so alone? Why am I feeling so overwhelmed? Why am I feeling so disconnected? Why am I feeling so scared or anxious or, you know, fill it in? There's just so many emotions that can come up. And when those emotions become more profound, that can also affect our desire to have sex. You know, because if you're in that like fight or flight mode, your brain is sending the signal, you know, if we think of of sex in part being, you know, if if we're looking at it in part through the evolutionary lens, if you're in that like fight or flight mode, your your brain sending the signal, it's not a safe environment for me to potentially procreate right right now, you know? I wonder also if there, if you know the answer to this question, if there's something biological to that, because back in the day, you know, there was no birth control. And like, once you had a kid, ideally you aren't going to have like 14 children. Mm -hmm. You're focused on that kid. You're less interested in having sex. And biologically that makes sense because if you were interested, you'd be having a child again right away. Absolutely. And that wreaks havoc on your body. Totally. And and that's, and that's part of the women why, or part of the reason why a lot of women who are breastfeeding don't have a period during that time because, you know, it's just probably not the not best the time best to bring time. in another baby. I do have some friends listening to this who did have the back-to-back oopsie, ba- yep, oopsie daisy happens. baby. And like it one happens. of them messaged me the other day and she was like, I'm laughing out loud listening to one of your podcasts, like talking about how you need like at least a year between kids because she got pregnant, I think after like her second kid was two months old or something. Oh, yeah. She got pregnant yeah, with her it definitely happens. I, you know, it all, we all get like the exact situation I think we're like meant to dealt, to, meant to deal with. But yeah, there's yeah. a reason why like 
you're not supposed to be able to get pregnant right exactly, after you have a kid. Exactly. It's like, whoa, there's yeah. too much going on. Let's pump the brakes for a minute. So yeah. a lot of people listening to this, they might not, I, I have a lot of women listening to my podcast who aren't mothers at all. They just listen because there's a lot of relatable topics on here. Just yeah. if you're going through life and right. I'm sure, you know, they can relate to being in an emotional place where sex just doesn't sound interesting. Definitely. I, I think about this, the culture we live in and how high the stakes are that we're always on our phones. We're always yeah. busy And then we have this idea of like, people always talk about vacation sex. When you go on vacation, you relax and you're interested in having sex. Exactly. So obviously there's a reason for that. Yes. So it's, this sort of brings us to the third branch of the biopsychosocial model. Okay. So what's happening socially, what's happening in your relationship or in your your environment that's going to make you, you know, perhaps feel more open to the idea of having sex. And historically we thought of what happens to us sexually as this very linear model. It was like, first you have desire, then maybe you have an orgasm. And then the kind of plateau or resolution, and that's it. Now we know that that is not how sex works for a lot of people, especially for women. So it's helpful to think of sexual desire as either happening spontaneously or responsively, okay? Now, surprise, surprise, a lot of men are more likely to say that they experience spontaneous sexual desire. That's kind of the feeling like, I feel horny, I want to have sex. Like, there it is. Um, Whereas more women are likely to say that they feel what we call responsive or receptive sexual desire. That happens in the presence of two things, okay? The first is feeling kind of relaxed or emotionally attended to by your partner, okay? So that may be like you've had a really long day, you come home, your partner says, you know, honey, I'm going to do bath time and I'm going to do the dishes after dinner. You sit down and have a glass of wine and relax. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. <laughs> okay. That, that sounds great. Um, the second is feeling a little bit of sexual arousal. Okay. So that may be later, you know, your partner comes and sits next to you and, you know, you're snuggling on the couch and what begins as kind of affectionate touch turns into, you know, the touch that may signal, oh, there's some sexual interest here. Maybe you see something on TV that's sort of exciting, you know, right. and that creates a a little bit of a feeling of arousal, then the desire to have sex might come. So why that's important is a lot of women are waiting for desire and not really thinking about how they may feel aroused, okay? So for a lot of women, desire and arousal go hand in hand, okay? Whereas for men, it's a little bit more that desire happens and then arousal happens, okay? So we're just wired differently. And it's not like one is right or wrong, better or worse. It's just different. And I think the more we can do to get to know how our bodies work and where there may be similarities and where there may be differences, you know, the more likely we are to feel desire and want to have sex. And so that's part of the reason why vacation sex is so great because you can relax, you've got your partner's undivided attention, you know, you don't have to cook if you're, you know, staying in a hotel, you can order room service, you're not having to do dishes, you're not having to do any of that stuff. The stresses of life aren't there. The stresses of life aren't there. And so you want to think about, you know, when you are back in, you know, your day-to-day life, what can you do to kind of work around that? Right. And you bring know. more of that, bring bring more space, I guess, into your day, right. room for it. Because it's not something that just happens like you snap your fingers like it would if you were on vacation. Exactly. Because you have these stressors around you. Yeah. So a lot of people that I talk to are really wrapped up with a number. Yes. Nobody knows how often anybody around them is having sex. Yeah. And 
and they feel I have one friend who brought this up with me recently that like she felt strongly that there was a certain number of times per week Mm -hmm. that one should be having sex with their spouse and she wasn't and because of that she felt like something might be wrong in her relationship right and I I have my own personal feelings about how we've lost sight of that we've lost sight of the number of times that we're having sex being an indicator for something like we're looking at it the wrong way, totally. but I'm very curious to hear what you think. Yeah. You're looking at it the wrong way. Yeah. If you're, yeah. if you're d- too hung like, up Oh, on the we number. have to do it like four times this week. And if we don't, then there's something wrong. I feel like no. it's like the most American <laughs> yeah. thing in the Check world. The I box. Mean, you could have sex one time and have it be this incredible, like celebration of finally working through a conflict. Thank right. You. Yes. And what if you're obsessing about like, well, we got to do it three more times this week or yeah. else that one didn't count or, or whatever. Like there's not, there is not a magic number. There's not a magic number. Whatsoever. So, you know, I come from the mind that nothing is a problem unless it's a problem. So you cannot take your relationship and compare it to someone else who says they're having sex every day or something. Yeah, there and are people who do have you know, sex every day. Yeah, if there are. Listening and, to this, you I'm know, sure. if, if that there is are what people who are just not works for them that. and, yeah. you know, great, more power to you. But, you know, for the average person, it's, it's probably not happening quite that frequently. And that is perfectly fine. So, you know, what we pay more attention to is, you know, is there a, how different, how different is the desire from, from you and your partner? So if there's a huge gap in how frequently you want to have sex, then we'll look at what we can do to kind of manage that difference, manage that gap so that it feels a little more manageable. Um, you know, but one couple, I've had couples come in who say, well, we only have sex once a month. What's wrong with us? And I'll turn to them and I'll say, well, you know, what is that like for you? Is that problematic? And they'll say, well, no, that one time a month is really meaningful and special and we plan for it. And, you know, and I'll turn to the other partner. Well, what about for you? What makes you think that's a problem? Well, Oprah said you have to have sex three times a week or there's something (laughs) wrong with you. And, you know, but no, I'm actually pretty happy with that. And I'm like, well, then why are you here? Exactly. So, you know, I think what's more important is is how frequently you're having sex working for your relationship not how that compares to someone else's relationship but really what's more important than the quantity is the quality you know if you have more quality sex and and that's what I've tried to shift the focus on with people is what can we do to make the sex more quality you know the more you enjoy it the higher your level of satisfaction probably the more often you're going to want to do it right Um, and so I think that's a more important way of looking at it so what about the relationships in when in which sex is completely stopped? Um, I mean, yeah. obviously having a number of times in which you have sex with your spouse per week is not the way to go about it. But right. there's always that person who says to you before you get married, you know, sex is really important. So just sure. remember to pay attention to it because it could be easy to lose sight of. Yeah. Where do you start with that? So I do, I will say that, you know, research shows, and there's been multiple studies that have looked at this, that there's, in, in my own research included, that there is a correlation between sexual satisfaction and relationship satisfaction. So much so that sexual satisfaction can be used as a barometer to measure relationship satisfaction. Wow. So, okay. you know, typically the, the happier we are sexually, the more satisfied we'll report feeling in our relationship in general. So, you know, for most people, again, this is not for everybody, but for most people, what's happening sexually can indicate, you know, can, can, is something to consider when looking at your overall relationship health. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Definitely. So it's something that we can look at without counting or having a specific number. Is this right. what's working for me? And you were saying, you know, for some people it's once a month and that's good enough yeah. for them. I mean, in, in none of the, the questionnaires or surveys that we use to measure sexual satisfaction, do we ask people how frequently it's happening? You right. know, we're asking things like, is there a give and take? You know, do you feel like your needs are being met in, you know, equal to your partners? And so it's, it's more those questions than how often it's happening. Well, that's something I love so much about following you on Instagram because uh-huh. you talk about how we're, we see all these like lights and magic in Hollywood and like they, yeah. this couple meets for the first time they have sex. It's like explosive. It's amazing. Right. But in real life, the key to really good sex is like excellent communication. And like, yeah, it takes a, a huge wa- part of it. It takes a long time it does. to really figure out what works for you and what doesn't work for you and work with your partner on that. Exactly. Is it? Yeah. You don't see couples in the movies like, working through negotiating their, their no. likes and dislikes and having, you know, those hard talks because the truth is talking about sex can be a very unsexy conversation. Absolutely. You know, it's Absolutely. not a conversation that should happen in the throes of making love. It's something that you kind of need to like set aside some time for and sit at the kitchen table without any distractions the, and the have a Wednesday night sex conversation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like what's working? What am I enjoying? And, yeah. and that's so important to, you know, couples need to get used to having that conversation because we evolve. Our preferences evolve. Our likes and dislikes might change. After you know, having a baby, yeah, I imagine, I mean, for yes, many women, definitely. I have had questions about that, that mm-hmm. like the sensations are different after you have a baby, yeah. the things that you want want are different, the things that you right. don't like are different. <laughs> exactly. So it's something that constantly needs to be discussed and perhaps renegotiated over the course of a marriage. And and that's kind of one thing that I think can keep relationships exciting is that it's not this, you know, you don't find this one script that works for you for the next 40, 50 years of your marriage. You know, you've got to keep the dialogue happening and and, you know, there's going to be an ebb and a flow and things are going to evolve and change. And rather than feeling frustrated by that, I think we can shift our paradigm and feel hopefully excited by that. You know, what's new? What's going to be different? Yeah. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I did pose, I did ask my followers what they would want to ask you. And I was actually very surprised. I thought that the mo- majority of women were going to talk about how they didn't have sex drive after having a baby. Yeah a lot of the women who reached out to me were actually telling me that their husbands don't have any sex mm-hmm. drive yeah. and that they are at a total loss for what to do about that. One right. of them said she's been having an ongoing, rather open conversation with her husband about this for years and nothing yeah. has changed. The other one, not so much. There's no conversation, but she's really struggling. She has no idea what to do to make him interested in having sex. Right. So it goes both ways. You know, it's, it's, you know, again, we, we don't really have our family structures and this whole idea of, you know, having family within the village and all this extra help and people around and, you know, people helping with the child. That's just not how we live our lives anymore. And so I would say that for men, what I hear being the reason why perhaps their desire has gone down after they've brought a baby in the world is because they feel very left out of the process. So the the emotional connection is important for men as well. You know, if they're feeling totally disconnected from their spouse, they're not going to want to, you know, have sex. And and for men, you know, having that sexual connection can really be an expression of love. It can be their love language. And so if that's not happening, it can just further, you their know, feelings. fuel the disconnect exactly. What makes them feel left out when a new baby comes into the picture? You're not doing it right. Ah, yeah, we (laughs) never think that they're doing it right. Yeah, and so I really encourage women to give partners a little space and let them figure out 
how to bond with the baby in their own way. And it might not be as efficient as you do things. It may, you know, but, and that's okay. You know, it's just okay. You know, I I tell women to like back off just a little bit so that their partners. I I got to tell you, I look back at my three month postpartum window with both of my kids and I'm like, Oh my, why was I so obsessed with being the only person who did any of those things? Oh, and yeah. it set me ba- I mean, it it's made things so much anybody. worse. It wasn't good for anybody. Yeah. Um, I felt so strongly in those moments that like he should be able to do things as the same exact way as I did. Mm-hmm. If I had only let go of that, like control shared so many more responsibilities <laughs> right. and you cannot expect perfect. You, your spouse isn't going to be the same person as you. He's no. not supposed to be the same person as you. Mm-hmm. I was talking about this on my last episode. Um, Denise Hamilton, who I mm-hmm. interviewed, talked about how she started to embrace the fact that her husband has this incredible way of not seeing the laundry. Oh. He has like laser focus and yeah. steps over. She'll put the laundry basket at the bottom of the stairs and <laughs> he will still step over it and right. not even know what she was talking about. That yeah. he had to bring it upstairs. Uh-huh. And she said, you know, after a while... I began to embrace his laser focus because I stopped to do like 18 things on my way up the stairs. Uh And at least like I have a spouse who has this quality that I don't have. Like he gets things done more efficiently than I do. And like to be able to, and no one can really function well and be happy when they're being Mm -hmm. criticized all the time. Exactly. And, and for men in particular, the criticism takes a toll on their ego. I can imagine, you know, I see, I mean, I, I also think media right now Mm -hmm. with like the way that we're moving as far as taking equal responsibility for a baby, I Uh think it's, I personally believe it like fuels a fire, um, in postpartum women, like men should be able to do exactly the same things as me and do them, do them just as well. Right. And it's this unrealistic idea that's just making us so unhappy. Right. It's crazy making, and it can really make your partner feel shut out and pushed away. And when that happens, when they feel criticized, when they feel like nothing they do is good enough, when they feel like they're no longer important to you, you know, if, if, and obviously you have this new baby, it's going to require a little bit more of your attention, right? but you can't lose sight of not just what's healthy for this baby, but what is healthy for my family and how do I balance everybody's needs so that no one feels, you know, neglected. And that's a really important shift because there's so much pressure on moms to, you know, keep the baby in the room for a year and breastfeed for at least a year and, you know, do all this stuff or you're going to, I made it like three nights with my first. And then I was like, Nope, sorry. And the second one, she was right in the nursery. Yeah, Yeah. I know. Yeah. Same. And they're fine. And And you know what? Mommy and daddy sleep better and we're happy. And if you can sleep with your kid in the room, God, like God bless you. Amazing. I'm so happy for you. But I I had loud babies. It was not working for me. But the messages that we get is like baby first. Like the priority is like, everything becomes about the baby and you've right. been in this marriage and then all of a sudden the baby comes along and like your marriage is the second priority but like really that's totally backwards yeah. because if you guys aren't getting along like everything sucks exactly and you know and even in my household that's a conversation we had to have you know I felt like okay everyone says you got to keep the baby in the room or yeah. you know they're gonna have SIDS or whatever right. and you know my husband was such a light sleeper and he even <laughs> like the tiny little it's baby miserable. noises would wake him up and so he moved into the guest room for a little while and after two months you know, he's like, Emily, please. Like, I just, I miss sleeping next to you at night and holding you. And I'm like, God, that sounds really good. I miss that too. So I remember going to the pediatrician visit at her two month checkup and being like, okay, what do you think? Is it okay if we move the baby out? And she was like, 
everything is going to be fine. And that is just what worked for our relationship. And like you were saying, it allowed us to connect in the evening when the baby wasn't in the room and to have that cuddle time and that physical affection is so important, by the way, for sexual desire. I mean, if, if you don't touch each other at all, during the day and then you you try to have sex it's It's gonna almost feel awkward yeah right so it's important to have physical affection and physical touch what about just like checking in during the day like how are you like yeah a lot of people like they spend the whole day away from each other and then they've had this entire day exactly and then their spouse comes home and it's like how do you switch gears how do you switch gears yes how do you catch up with each other how do you Mm -hmm. make each other feel heard and seen right right so I do think yeah check-ins are important um I love check-ins I usually encourage couples to have kind of like a bigger check-in once a week where maybe they sit down on like Sunday evening or you know pick a night during the week where you can have that downtime and check in on okay what start with appreciations like what do I appreciate about you what you know do I appreciate in life in general what's what's working what's going well you know you start with that. And then you can talk about maybe um, something that is puzzling to you. You know, what's something that you need some clarification on? Maybe they said something that perhaps you heard the wrong way and you need to kind of find out what they meant by that. And then you can talk about larger issues, you know, okay, we need to check in on our finances or we need to talk about, you know, getting a regular babysitter, you know, and so you talk about that. And and then you can talk about like your wishes, hopes, and dreams. Like what are you hoping for the future? And and so the the more regular you have more regularly you have that conversation the the more likely these bigger issues are to build up and get pent up and then explode or you know time goes by and you haven't talked about something that is so important and then you know the resentment is there and you can't even have the conversation because you're so angry so i i love check-ins i i we do them and i encourage my clients to do them too well speaking of scheduled check-ins that was another question that i schedule, got schedule yeah i thought Woman we might go like, there someone said you know what am i supposed to what am i supposed to schedule sex with my spouse and i was yes. reading and i was like i think so yes <laughs> i think yes, you are definitely <laughs> she's like i have no time and like the baby's always out what about yeah. i want you schedule everything else that's important in your life and yeah. i think that there's something that's not sexy about that to a lot of people but like well, again I mean, you don't see like anyone in the movies you don't see them sex. scheduling yeah, sex it appears to be completely spontaneous right. and you know that just doesn't work for a lot of people and like you said we schedule other things in our lives that are important and if you recognize that sex is an important part of your relationship having some time set aside that you can focus your energy and attention on that is so important and what I always tell people is that when you were dating you were scheduling it you just didn't call it that, but you knew you were scheduling your dates. You were scheduling yeah. your dates. You knew, you know, if Friday night was rolling around, there was like a positive, a very positive anticipation that was building up, and you would make sure your legs were shaved, or he would make sure to put that spritz of cologne on, and like everyone knew what was going to happen. And you got ready. Like the, you yeah, got, you got ready. Yeah. You felt excited. You were, you know, happy to be together. Like you were totally scheduling it. So. Is there something to getting ready? I mean, especially for like the po- the new mom or the five year in. Mom, who's always in you know sweatpants and doesn't feel attractive, is there yes. something to like getting ready to have sex? I think for a lot of women there is. For some women, it's not as important, but I do think that for a lot of women, kind of having it's like a self care time. You know, right. paying attention to yourself, it's a sign of self worth and value. You know, to to take care of yourself, and that doesn't mean you have to 
you know, be red carpet ready, but just to, you know, put a swipe of mascara on if you don't typically do that during the day or, you know, put that favorite pair of shoes on or that dress that you feel really good in. Yeah. Giving yourself that attention because as new moms, we're so used to giving our attention to everybody else. Everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think like before, for most of us, before we had children, the most important, the most exciting thing in our life was our spouse. It was our favorite person to spend time with. So I also think there's something to, you know, you can, yes, schedule sex if you need to do that but yeah. like schedule date night oh, date yeah. night like yeah. make time to have romance and we have had enjoy our, each other yeah we have had our saturday night date night saturday scheduled night date night you know the pretty best. much since <laughs> she was like six weeks old or, or maybe it's even younger it's yeah consistent. it's scheduled i yeah. mean i remember like we took a selfie on our first date night after having the baby and we both look so tired and i remember thinking like I just want to like sit back and relax and like put a show on. But, you know, we knew that it was going to be really important for our relationship. And so we just forced ourselves to go out and we had a great time. I you love know? that. You have to so, like having something scheduled. We've had a standing Saturday day night as well since yeah. our first daughter was born. I can't you. tell you how many nights there have been where I'm like, oh God, if our nanny wasn't coming over right now, I, I would know, like, so want to just like watch it. Like sometimes I'm like exhausted, yeah. but I'm so glad like for all the nights that I've gone where I'm really pushing myself to get out of the house, there's like a hundred more where I'm so excited totally and I get to have this time to like connect with Ben and and just like enjoy each other absolutely and it's kind of like going to the gym I mean you may be dragging on your way there but once you're in it and you're connecting and you're talking and you're having fun or you know out at a new restaurant or whatever it is you you get into it and you feel the payoff right away I think so many, you know, since we don't talk about this very, we have a baby and it becomes all about the baby. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about our spouse and making time for them. People right. feel silly yeah. Um, having to schedule something like that. But there's really nothing silly about it. Like, no, it's just, I mean, you have a whole is, new life when you have a baby. You do. And this yeah. is just thinking about your overall family health and right. who is a member of your family. You know, you have to think about how to balance to the best of your ability, your own self-care with your marriage, with the needs of the child. And it can feel like a constant you know, balancing act, act. And there may be periods of time where you need to focus a little bit more on yourself. I mean, I've had times where I'm like, okay, I need a girl's weekend. And I have a couple friends and we schedule these girls yeah. like weekend getaways where, you know, we away. can just be away from the family. Yeah. And that's such an important part of my self-care. And, you know, I come back feeling so revived and refreshed and yeah, excited. We yeah, exactly. We've gotten like really obsessed with like never spending a night away from our children. And like, I remember my oh, parents, yeah. all my friends' parents, like mm-hmm. went on like one week, two week vacations. Oh, it was yeah. not a big deal at think all. Think about it. Yeah. We went on a rather prolonged vacation when our daughter Selma was 10 months old. Uh-huh. Oh, the flack that we got from people. She's uh, going to be traumatized. God. And like literally we came back. We'd had the time of our lives yeah. and she had no idea. She was fine. She was fine. Yeah. And like, even if she wasn't perfectly fine, she would have been a week later. Right. It was so important for us to do that yeah. and like to just have that time together. It's so important. And I think that, you know, comes back to how important it is to allow other people in the family to connect with your child yeah, and let them do it in your own adults. way. They need a they need their own exactly. tribe too. I mean, yeah. you know, if you have family around, the grandparents are not going to do things exactly the way that you do. You know, they, yeah. you know, it's a different generation. They're not going to adhere to the schedule the way perhaps that, that we do. But you know, we survived, and your child will survive, and they will have these bonds with their grandparents that are so meaningful. If you can just 
give up a little bit of that control, which I know is so hard for people, but it is so important. It is. It really is important. So before we move on to your next project, which I'm so excited to talk to you about, I've asked you all the questions that I got from my followers and the ones that I came up with on my own. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other things that most people most commonly bring to you when they show up in your office for the first time? So aside from sexual desire, you know, I have a lot of men who struggle with like erectile dysfunction or issues around ejaculation. Maybe they feel like it's happening too quickly or not happening quickly enough. Um, I've got women who have difficulty with their own orgasm. Um, and then I have a lot of women who might struggle with pain during intercourse. And there's, you know, a lot of reasons why that might happen. So So when somebody, when women come to you and there's Mm -hmm. a pain issue or when they are struggling to reach orgasm with their partner, like what are some of the more common suggestions, I guess you could say that tend to work for. Yeah. So, you know, I always start by doing a really thorough assessment because five people can come in with the same presenting problem, but there may be like 10 different reasons why they're experiencing, experiencing it. So I look at, you know, what's happening in their relationship? Is there a relationship dysfunction? Is there a history of trauma? Is there, you know, did they grow up perhaps in like a cultural or religious background that was very rigid and, you know, they still carry this, you know, idea that like sex is wrong. And so their body is responding to that idea. Um, Do they have underlying anxiety or depression? And so I, I sort of end up treating whatever the underlying issue is. Sometimes it's, it's more surface level. A cigar is just a cigar, but a lot of times when we're experiencing some problems sexually, Mm -hmm. it can be a symptom of something else. So how do we bring issues around sex up with our partner if we're currently uncomfortable doing so? I feel like most of the people who brought issues up with me um, where maybe their spouse didn't have as much sex drive or they didn't, they definitely, in a lot of cases, hadn't discussed these issues with their spouse and there was a reason for that. Right, right. So like I said before, talking about sex or, or discussing your sexual frustrations is is not only scary, it can feel very vulnerable. I mean, I think that sex is one of our, you know, it's one of the most intimate parts of our lives. And so to identify that part as having an issue or something you feel dissatisfied about can be a very vulnerable place to go. So, you know, I think it's important to start by saying something like, you know, I want you to know how much I care about you and how important our relationship is to me. So and start with something positive. Start Always start with something positive, you know, and, and perhaps even like this is what's going really well. But I also recognize that, you know, sex is a really important part of our relationship. And I feel like we've sort of gotten off course in that department. And, you know, would it be okay if we talk a little bit more about that so that we can get back on track and so that 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 can, you know, continue to be a positive part of our relationship? I think what you just said is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, I was at a wedding recently where one of the people who gave a toast was a psychologist. And Uh she said, my biggest gift to you as a couple can be to to tell you about the feedback sandwich. Yes, the good old sandwich technique. I really think you're yeah. an incredible dresser. I would so appreciate it if you would stop leaving your beautiful clothes on the floor. And right. I just want to let you know I loved your outfit today. It's just like she made like the funniest yeah. examples like exactly. to be funny about it. Yeah. But like the feedback, say, like say something nice first. When somebody approaches you with criticism, you're going to like jolt. You're going to clam up. Yeah. Your defenses are going to go up. You're formulating your response before you've even, before your partner's even finished, you know, trying to share whatever right. issue they have. So yeah, it's so important to start with, you know, the positive and start with that affirmation. That's why like, you know, going back to that couple's check-in, the first thing on the list is like the affirmations, what's working, what's, what's going working. well. Yeah. And then you can, and then start, and then ask, you know, when would be a good time to have that conversation? 
you know, and that, that gives your partner a little bit of time to assess, well, is that a dialogue I'm opening to, I'm open to having right now? Or, you know, do I need to think a little bit more about that? And I don't have to discuss this this second. Exactly. And you can say that, like, we don't have to talk about it right now, but, you know, I do feel that it's important and, you know, I'd like for us to set aside some time so that we can talk about how to work around this problem, how to work through it. I love that. Mm -hmm. I think that that's, I I know for me, when I talk about anything that's just intense, like something that's happening with me or happened to me that day, if I do it right before I go to sleep, I have a really hard time going to bed afterward. Right. Because you're still processing. I'm still processing it. So like, I've just kind of gotten used to saying, you know, I really want to talk about this Mm -hmm. so badly, actually. Yeah. If I do it right now, I'm not going to bed and I need to get my sleep. Yes. Like sleep is priority number one at my house. So yeah. Um, yeah, just like having the words to say that. Exactly. Going back to one of the things I brought up in the beginning of this interview, why don't we talk about this more as a society? Can you tell us a little more about that? You know, sadly, it's something I think we all still have so much shame around. And, you know, I think that part of that is we still, you know, kind of carry over these like puritanical beliefs around sex. You know, there's a lot of, you know, people who have religious belief where like their whole lives, sex is something that is wrong or dirty or they should avoid or, you know, abstain. And then suddenly you are married and it's okay. Oh, I mean, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing else in our lives that you're told your whole childhood and adolescence don't do and now suddenly like it's you're okay. allowed yeah right. so there's this like emotional whiplash around it and that even be... if we don't grow up by the way with that type of religious standard it's still the right. religious it's still the standard of society like even though yes. we have like a very sexualized culture mm-hmm. there's definitely still an undertone of like this is bad unless you're married well right and I think that part of the reason you know on the one hand our culture is so sexualized is because it's kind of still so suppressed. We have you know? so much so shame it's like, around it. Yeah, We're not the allowed pendulum to... is like on one end or the other. If you go to a lot of European countries, like France, for example, no I mean, you'll see nudity shit. on yeah. TV and no one is covering their eyes or it's telling like, their kids oh to goodness. look away. Right. It's just like, <laughs> no big deal. Yeah. You know, and here it's like, you can have the most violent you know, sh- program on, but the minute there's something sexual, everyone's like, turn away. No one's talking Whereas, about it. Whereas, you right. know, sex is something that is so human and so natural and so wired into us. You know, yeah. I-, I love to remind women that we have a part of the body that men don't have, whose sole purpose is sexual pleasure. It serves no other function. It's the only thing. It's the, yeah, the clitoris. Yeah. Okay. Men don't have a body part whose sole purpose is sexual pleasure. So it's literally there for a reason. Like you're supposed to be having sex. Enjoy it. Because you are given a body part to enjoy it, right? Exactly, right. So we are hardwired. Like sexual pleasure is our birthright. But that's not something that we're taught. You know, I encourage people to teach their kids from a very early age to use appropriate names for their genitalia. I mean, that's one of like the small little changes that you can make to set your child up to feeling, you know, sexually self-assured. So you call an elbow an elbow, you call a vulva a vulva. Like you don't have to call it a hiney or a (laughs) hoo-ha or a vajayjay, you know, like know your body parts and just teach them to your kids. Well, this is something, I mean, I got to tell you I was raised like the apex of like what you just described like there was no I mean I got my period and I swear like there was no discussion about it. Yeah. It was like, okay, that's weird. Here are some pads. Let's never talk about it yeah. again. Um, nobody used the word vagina in my house. Yeah. And I mean, my husband comes from the same type of thing. So it's like with us, it's totally uncharted territory. Right. I just find myself with my own kids though, thinking like, why, 
neither one of them is old enough to un- to know what sex is. But like, mm-hmm. why would I ever? I don't even know if they're gonna find it as weird as I did. Hopefully because not. like, just their life isn't like it was like I remember finding what, out what sex was for the first time, and it was like my mom was describing it to me, and I yeah. was like ew like it just seemed like this totally foreign thing and then right. it would never happen again yeah there's like a um, one time I talk. learned about like the tech and there was a one-time talk and then like yeah. let's never discuss this again right. and like I don't know how that's going to go with my own children but mm-hmm. I feel like the dynamic is so much different like by the time I don't think they're going to think it's that weird yeah hopefully by the time Meryl and I get done with this then everyone will have these ongoing right? discussions <laughs> with our kids and everyone who's listening will have these very sexually empowered kids yeah. you know like for example in a lot of Scandinavian countries they don't separate the boys and the girls to talk about periods and sex like they keep them together and, what and they that need do? to be like yeah, in the same everyone needs to know what's happening with the other sex and right. you know they need to get comfortable talking about it in front of people of the opposite sex but here it's like let's separate and put you know I think when I was in like fourth or fifth grade they put reading rainbow on for the boys and then the girls <laughs> got the period talk and like yeah I remember one girl what? passed out you know <laughs> it was like, so you know we just hopefully things are changing a little bit but it's so important to have ongoing dialogue and discussion. And a lot of times with kids, if you ask them a question and you give them a pretty straightforward answer, they may not completely understand what that means, but they're not typically going to ask like a ton of follow-up. They're going to continue to process it. And, you know, maybe a couple months will go by before they say, well, what did, what exactly did you mean when you said that a baby is in your belly? Like, what, did, what does that mean? And then you can provide a little more information. So I really discourage parents from having like a one-time birds and bees conversation really okay I like that approach so like as questions come up you can start to disclose more information what is the Mm -hmm. age typically that you feel like a child is like most ready to receive like the big chunk of information yeah well there's the, <laughs> the main chunk I know what are they? <laughs> I mean there's there's this great book on how to talk to your kids about sex I think the title is something like from diapers to dating so it just okay. sort of like reiterates the point that it should be ongoing, it's an ongoing but you know I will say that nowadays with kids being exposed to so much more at such an earlier age the conversations have to happen a little bit earlier and that should include conversations around you know internet use and porn and masturbation and you know all of that stuff because kids are gonna either discover that on their own and this is not like your dad's playboys lying around that our generation may have experienced this is you know they're they're potentially being exposed to very hardcore unrealistic content and so parents have to have that conversation with their kids pretty early on about you know what to avoid um, you know, what is realistic, what's not, you know, and how to kind of get in touch with their body. And, and it's a whole new set of issues. I mean, I'm getting, you know, younger clients who are having all kinds of sexual dysfunction because they've perhaps grown up on this kind of hardcore porn and then they're with an actual partner and it's like the wires get crossed. And they, it's you just know? not reality. And yeah, like they have very distorted ideas mm-hmm. of what women want sexually and so yeah that can be a whole other <laughs> podcast episode in and of itself too but yeah I think it just iterates the point that we need to ha- get comfortable having these conversations so that we can raise sexually healthy children well I know like I was raised by baby boomers so my mom had me when she was 41 years old so uh-huh. I almost like I she's older than most parents of millennials if yeah you will. yeah but um I mean she never masturbation was not a discussion in my household. Yeah. I can't even believe I just said that word on my own podcast. <laughs> it's like a I but um 
but I know that like in everything that I heard, even mm-hmm. like in school and education, it was just like, that's not something that we do ever. And it's oh, bad. Gosh, and like, no. I know men, especially just mm-hmm. like, I think the shame associated with it yeah. has like caused so much damage because right. it's a very normal thing. And so normal. it's so I normal. Mean, and ask- like, yeah. When you feel terrible about something that you're doing privately, it makes you feel like a terrible person. Right. That's and where then the you shame act out sexually. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, it's something I ask almost all of my clients when I'm doing that initial sexual history and interview to see, you know, if they have potentially sexually sh- sexual shame that we have to work through is, you know, what was masturbation like for them as they were entering into adolescence? And the truth is for most men and women who come into my office, it's something that they did. And sadly, a large percentage of them feel shame about it. But most people are doing it. And, yeah. you know, the truth is it's it's a great way to discover your body and learn what feels good. And, you know, those can be kind of potentially terrifying conversations to imagine having with your adolescent. But, you know, to just give them permission that it's okay to touch your body. And, and there's sort of a gender socialization that happens. You know, I think that no one bats an eye it's when okay for boys men. are, t- little boys are, you know, exploring their penis or whatever. But the second a little girl touches her, vulva it's like don't touch yourself there yeah that's That's dirty yeah yeah Yeah. and so we have to fight those urges to to shame or to say you know don't do that to our kids because that's what's instilling the shame I love it oh my gosh I could we could talk about how to talk to your children about sex I think it's gonna have to be another episode for sure yeah okay so you have been in practice now for how long gosh over 10 years over 10 years but Uh you just told me before we started talking Mm. you're taking a break right now because you are writing a book I am tell us about that yes I'm so excited so it's something I've wanted to do for a long time um the topic is is one that I've done various workshops around and then when I did my um my PhD, I ended up focusing that my um, my research around this topic, and um, that paper just got p- picked up by an academic journal, and and so I'm like, okay, now I finally have to turn this into a book. And so that's what I'm working on right oh, now. Oh, I'm looking forward to reading it. I know Thank so many you. listeners will be as well. Yeah. Thank you again so much for joining me, Dr. Emily Jamia. If anyone wants to follow you on Instagram, which I have so enjoyed, you are at Dr. DR Emily Jamea mm-hmm. and um, you work at Revive Therapy again uh, right here in Montrose so yes. if anyone wants to pay you a visit um, that's where they can find you yep. and you can find me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose I am your host today of Look Ma No Hands thank you again for joining us I hope you'll subscribe share with your friends and join us again next Tuesday Mama, Mama.